0: Good morning, everyone, and wonderful to see you. I pray that this morning's message, again, as always, is going to be a blessing to you, and uh, I pray that as we continue on looking at this particular topic that we're dealing with, uh, it, may, uh, it may glorify the Lord. The title of the message this morning is The Preservation of Truth. We're continuing on in this series with regards to the Bible, the book that we hold in our hands. Is it the very Word of God or is it not the very Word of God. We're going to be looking at the preservation, the idea that the Word of God has been promised from before to be preserved. I want to ask you a question quickly. The Bible says that God magnifies His Word above His own name, magnifies His Word above His own name. And He makes a promise to preserve His words, all of them. He makes a promise to preserve them. If somehow God has not been able to preserve His words and we are also told that we are preserved by Him, what confidence can we have of being preserved? It's worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about. The preservation of truth. Are are there words in the Bible that you don't like? That's a good question. Is it what you don't understand in the Bible that bothers you or what you do understand in the Bible that bothers you? Does what the words mean trouble us or what they actually just say? Uh, That's some good questions that we can be asking. The preservation of the truth is incredible, just even as a statement to make in these days. Days where truth doesn't seem to even exist anymore, where truth seems to be relative, where everybody has their own personal truth and because we're living a post post postmodern age, that truth that everybody believes individually is absolute, absolute. It cannot be questioned and yet here we are talking about the preservation of the truth. We're living in a world that has protested the reality of truth and we'll come to that in a a couple of messages time, the protest of truth, but meanwhile we're asking the question is can the truth itself be preserved? Is there anything with regards to what we see within the Bible that gives us a personal um, conviction, I suppose, to disregard it? I don't like what it says there, the words in there that I don't like, uh, I don't like what they say, I don't like the word hell in the Bible, uh, I don't like the word fornication in the Bible, I don't like what they say because I don't like what they mean, would we better served if they were taken out, would that make a difference, would that make a difference? Would it make, it, would it make a difference denying the truth to the truth? doesn't change reality, does it? Reality is reality, it's a stubborn thing, we're told, reality is a very stubborn thing. What we have today, however, is a Christian world that largely denies the preservation of the Word of God. They give a semblance of ideas with regards to saying this is the Bible and matter of fact, many of them have the Word Holy written on them and yet all of them are different and we know that there are errors filled in most of them, all of them, except we believe in one. We believe that there has to be a holy Bible if God has preserved His words. If God's words are preserved, they have to be pure words, not not words with admixture in them. Has God preserved His words and to what extent are we to expect those words to be preserved? Have a look at the text that we're looking at this morning in Psalm 12. Psalm 12 and just verses 6 and 7 is our main focus It says there simply this, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the truth of the Bible. And I pray to you, Lord, that in every way we may be convicted of heart of those truths that we find within the Scriptures. Bring to us the clarity, dear Lord, that we need. Bring to us hearts, dear Father, also desiring to understand the truth of the matter. Help us discern between that which is right and that which is wrong. Let us be, dear Lord, as those noble noble Bereans who would receive the word with all readiness of mind. But we search the Scriptures, whether or not those things are so. That we don't serve, search our own preferences, that we don't search our own lusts or desires, but we would search the Scriptures for a foundation of the truth of them. We ask, dear God, be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Words, the words, not the message, the words, it's the words, not the message, not the ideas, the words. It's the words that the Bible says are to be preserved and that is as simple as that. Next point. Okay, now let's let's expound on that a little bit. It's not the thoughts of the Lord, notice the text doesn't say the thoughts of the Lord are pure Thoughts? It says the words of the Lord are pure words. It's not the ideas of the Lord, it's the words of the Lord that are pure words. It was a man by the name of Eugene Nieder who developed a philosophical method of translation that has affected all of us to this very day. man was born in 1914, he was a Jesuit, he came out of the Jesuit order, he was an individual who Uh, was a professor of the Jesuit Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. And interestingly, he had a um, cross-cultural employment where he also happened to be a founding member of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, which most of modern translations come out of what's known as the Nestle-Allens Greek text that was developed by the Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he was also an executive, on the Executive Translation Secretary of the American Bible Society that uses the UBS text. So, interesting how he has this, well, we would call it an influence. What we see with regards to Eugene Nita is he developed a philosophy of translation that affects each one of us today, if we're not holding to this one. He developed a, a form of translation known as dynamic equivalency. Anybody ever heard of that? Dynamic equivalency, so, so equivalency stays the same, dynamic it moves, so it moves but it stays the same, something like that is what that refers to. Every form of translation that we have ever had with regards to languages in any way is what's known as formal, trans, uh, formal equivalency, in other words, it's word for word translation generally a word-for-word translation. When we're looking at a language and we're looking at a word that fits that language, it's word-for-word in general terms, okay? Dynamic equivalency is a thought-for-word translation. In other words, it's not word-for-word, it's thought-for-word is what the, the, the idea, the meaning behind those words is what's actually put into place. While formal equivalency is a word-for-word, dynamic equivalency is thought-for-word, Word for word obviously has its limits, doesn't it? We have limits with regards to a word for word translation. There's only a limit to how many words you can actually use that would properly translate another word. But when we're moving on a thought for word translation, do you have any limits? No, because you can think whatever you want to think that the word actually means. So a thought for word translation doesn't have any limits. Now you get a little bit of a hint onto why we have such a plethora of Of modern translations of the Bible, all of which are employing a form of dynamic equivalency. Now, they may not employ it all the way through the text but they will certainly employ it where they see fit. Now, rightly said, every translation has a slight amount of dynamic equivalency in it. What do I mean by that? Well, there are words in languages that don't have a perfect rendering in another language, word for word, okay? you've heard me speak about this before, that there is such a thing known as perfect equivalence in translation. Okay, I speak more than one language, I speak at least two languages, and I know lots of words in other languages, most of them not appropriate. But those, those <laughs> the reality is that there are, there are translations, there are words that can be translated in another language, that is word perfect, it's, it's perfect equivalence in translation. But sometimes it requires two or three words. To translate a given word. Sometimes it'll be a phrase in that language that can be translated into English in one word, sometimes not. When you're looking at the languages, the unique word vocabulary in in other languages, they range into the hundreds of thousands of words. The English language has over, well Google will tell you that there are over 2 million English words and the dictionary a volume of dictionary that I have, there's over 600,000 unique words. We round it off to roughly a million unique words in the English language alone. The average vocabulary of educated individuals is around about 20,000. That's the extent of our vocabulary, did you know that? You were lucky to get through half of that in a given day. If you're a woman, you'll get close but if you're a man, no chance. No chance. But this is the reality, you know, we, we will use only a certain number of words in our day-to-day life. Well, the Bible, this one here, the King James Version of the Bible has 12,858 words, 12,858 words. That's the unique vocabulary of the Bible, that's all we have in there. God promised, however, to preserve not His thoughts, but His words... And when we're using dynamic equivalency in the translation, all of a sudden it becomes a thought for word translations. Can I ask you a question? Who, when, it's, when it's the words of the Lord are pure words, whose words are they? They're His words, yeah? Okay. So when we use dynamic equivalency, however, for our translation and it becomes a thought for word translation, whose words are they? Man's words. Hence, Copyright put that one out there. The very method of translation of books such as the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, the New American Bible, the New International Version, today's New International Version, the New Living Translation, the Good News Translation, the Contemporary English Version, the Living Bible, the Message and on and on and on. Each one of these are dynamic equivalence translations and that basically means, simply put, they are man's Words not God's words. They are man's words, not God's words. By the very method of translation, they are not the Holy Bible. And this interesting thing about that is everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. That's why they're happy to look at it as suggestive. They look at the book at those books and they say that they're suggestive that we can't really know that they're not necessarily God's words because they're man's words in there. So, you know, we can take it or leave it. And this is one of the reasons why people get so upset when we point to one book and we say, this is the very Word of God. And we'll go into why they get upset in a moment. It's the words of the Lord that are pure words. So clearly that none of these can ever claim to be pure words, for they are not the words of the Lord, but man's. And the devil will say, thank you Eugene Nita, with one simple idea you've been able to create a fortune for individual translators who would like to come up with their own version of the Bible and at the same time you've confounded the hearts of many Christians. The devil is very, very pleased. Present, not the past, the words of the Lord are pure words. There's a tense there, do you notice? There's a tense, the words of the Lord are pure words. It's not was, not was, the words of the Lord were pure words, it's ah. It's interesting, in 2 Timothy 3.16 it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's what it tells us in Second Timothy 3. The claim is often found in either the constitution of churches or Bible colleges or anything like that, they've got an element in the statement of faith that goes something like this, we believe the Bible in the original manuscripts are without error, we believe the Bible in the original manuscripts are without error, it's a nice safe place to be, don't you think? I mean, who wouldn't believe that? If you're a Christian, generally you believe that's the case. But there's there's a problem with that. Here's one that I got from a fundamental Christian church online. We believe. Listen to this carefully and see if you can pick up the contradiction. All right. So I'm warning you ahead of time. There's a contradiction in this. See if you can pick it up. We believe the Bible in its original documents is the inspired word of God. Sorry. What's the matter with the tense? As if it's current, that's right. To a degree it does, but the interesting part of it is that in the original documents is. The original documents, do they exist today? No, they are in the past and we don't have the original documents. Nobody has the original documents, they are long gone. I want to ask you a question, do you think God's bothered by the originals? think God cares about the originals so much? I'm not sure if the Lord cares about the originals so much. We'll talk about that in a moment. What's interesting thing about this is that the Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words. We cannot apply a present tense to a document that is in the past, that no longer exists. Is cannot apply to a document that is no longer. It's that simple. The Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But the statement of faith given by a lot of these churches and Bible colleges denies the proof of God preserving His words. Because if He says then they are the words of God and we still have them today, just within that is a promise of preservation all the way through. We have, in short, and I was in Bible college and they actually had that in there, they had that as their as their thing and he said no it's the original documents the original documents yes the original documents now, doesn't scripture say that all scripture is given by inspiration of God but you're saying that all scripture was given by inspiration of God you know all scripture the words of the Lord are pure words now they're saying that the words of the Lord were pure words do you think tense matters well it mattered to Jesus turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 Mark chapter 12 Let's have a look at an example within the Bible of how tense even matters to the Lord Jesus Christ. And have a look at what he was defending. This is astounding. Now, you remember the individuals known as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Remember those? We had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in angels and they believed in the supernatural completely. The Sadducees did not. They denied all of that sort of thing. And here we have the Sadducees denying the resurrection and you've heard the old joke yeah that's why they were sad sad, you see yeah everybody knows that I don't bother repeating it anymore so they they were definitely sad here they are testing the Lord Jesus Christ Mark chapter 12 verse 19 they come to the Lord Jesus and they say this Master Moses wrote unto us, if a a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, the first took a wife and dying left no seed, and the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed, last of all the woman died also. In the resurrection therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do you not therefore err, because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Here we have the Lord Jesus Christ defending the very reality of life after death. He's defending the entire reality of life after death. He's he's defending the reality that after we die, we are also again raised. Some raised to glory, some raised to damnation this is the reality, Jesus is defending the entire thing based on what? The present tense of a verb, the present tense of a verb, that's it. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In the present tense of a verb, the Lord Jesus Christ is defending the entire resurrection and put them all to sleep, put them all to bed, all these these Sadducees that would question him. Do you think that matters? I think that matters. Paul does the same thing with regards to the plural and the singular. He speaks about the seeds, not of many, but the seed is of one, and that is Christ, speaking about that in the Old Testament. So these, these plurals and pronouns and how they're, how they're used matters to the Lord. You cannot have a statement of faith that so evidently contradicts what God says about his words. Now also something else it's the words, not the document, the words, not the document. The text tells us there in Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. God had never promised to preserve the original documents. Never promised to preserve the originals. In fact, God does not even regard the original documents. Um, Turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 31. Let's have a look at how... God feels about the originals. Exodus chapter 31, last verse there, God had been communing with Moses up on the mount and God had given to Moses two tables of testimony, tables of stone and these are written by the very finger of God. And in Exodus chapter 31, in verse 18, we get the clarity of it here so we can understand it. It says there, And he gave unto Moses, Exodus 31, 18, And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. What do we have there? That's an original. That's an original. You reckon it'd be valuable? It's written by the finger of God. I reckon it'd be valuable. You know, And no, no woke movement is ever going to glue themselves to these stone tablets and try and wreck them in some particular way. No, no, these ones God has, He's got the finger of God on it, yet something happens. Have a look in the next chapter in verse 7, the people on the, the people below were starting to actually create a tremendous amount of mischief and they made a mess of themselves. Exodus 32 verse 7, the Lord said unto Moses, go get thee down, for thy people, which thou brought us out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves now verse fifteen verse fifteen, and Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. You get the impression that God wants you to know that his very hand was upon these tables of stone. His hand was upon them specifically. And verse 17, And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. But the noise of them that do sing, that sing, do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. And that was the end of the originals. I want you to note something really important, that for three and a half thousand years, The people of Israel have sought themselves to obey the commandments of God in an original that the only human eyes that have ever seen was Moses. None of them had ever seen the originals. Only Moses ever saw the originals. Do you think that God was bothered by that? I mean, can you imagine this for a second, just for a minute? Moses grabs the tables of stone in anger. He throws them on the ground and you can hear Lord... Out of heaven going moses moses no don't it's the only copy i had could you imagine god i I can't imagine god doing that i can't imagine god doing that now we know something that's interesting and that is that moses ended up going back onto the mount and god gave him the tables of stone again again with the finger of god again he grove he grave on it with his own fingers but what do we know about that it was a copy still wasn't the original It's still only a copy. Turn your Bibles to another one, another example in Jeremiah. We've got two examples in Jeremiah of the originals and what's been done with them. Jeremiah chapter 36, it's in the prophets portion of your Bible. So go after Psalms, after Isaiah, you'll see Jeremiah. If you get to Lamentations, you've gone too far. Go back so Jeremiah there between Isaiah and Lamentations and if you're in the New Testament you really need to learn your Bible orders <laughs> All right. so, Jeremiah chapter 36 chapter 36 now here we have in this passage Jeremiah having written the words of God at the mouth of God he wrote them on a document, he'd given them to Baruch. Baruch had now brought that document to the people of the court. They had seen the document, read the document, they tore their clothes as a result of what they read within the document and now they bring the document to Jehoiakim the king. Verse 20, And they went into the king, into the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elisha the scribe and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll and he took it out of Elishamah, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a pen knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Now we have it. What happened to the originals? He cut out what he didn't like. What didn't he like? The entire roll. He cut out the entire roll, and what did he do with it? He threw it in the fire. There's originals number one, gone. Have a look at verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll, and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, "Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned." And verse 32. Then Jeremiah t- then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words. Of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. Now, you have those words in your own book. You have those words in, in chapter 35 and 36. Those words that would condemn Jehoiakim were still preserved. But did God take care for the originals? No. Are the documents the concern for the Lord? No. It's the words that are on the documents that matter to the Lord. The last one, we'll talk about a book and a river. Jeremiah chapter 51, have a look there. Jeremiah chapter 51. There was a condemnation set against, the, against Babylon. It's the entire chapter, chapter 51. That is the condemnation. That is the words that were written. And have a look what's been done here. Jeremiah chapter 51 Towards the end of the chapter, chapter uh, in verse sixty, we'll take the reading. And it says there: So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, When thou comest to Babylon, and thou shalt see, and shalt see, and shalt read all these words. Then shalt thou say, O Lord, thou hast spoken against this place to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it, and cast it into the midst of Euphrates. And thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her. And they shall be weary, thus far, of the words of Jeremiah, Beloved what's happened to the book, what happened to the original, it got thrown into the river Euphrates, didn't it, it got thrown into the river Euphrates, now I wouldn't mind hanging around until Revelation chapter 16 when they drain the Euphrates river and it all dries up, and might be able to find the copy there, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not, but imagine if you found the copy, you know, you just go to the Euphrates, find a copy of this book, I'm sure God says He's preserved His words, it must still be in good order, You can bring it then back up to the surface and you'd never have to work another day in your life. Wouldn't that be good? What's incredible about this is that over two and a half thousand years ago, we have chapter 51, the originals thrown into the Euphrates River. How is it that you have it in your own hands? It must have been copied. It must have been copied. Does God care for the documents or the words? God cares for the words, clearly. Clearly. Now, this, this is the coming to a close in this because I want to finish on this particular item because I want to be able to demonstrate to you that there is a motivation that people have in denying, first and foremost, what they have within the Bible. When they're looking at what we hold as the King James translation of the Bible and we hold and believe that this is the very perfect words of God in the English language, this is not a cultish idea, beloved. Every single week for the last four or five weeks you have had within your newsletter quotes taken from the earliest time, the 1600s, 1700s, the 1800s, I think we're up to around about 1840, 1845 at the moment, a testimony from even the theologians of the time that recognised that the vast majority of Christians, almost all English-speaking Christians believed that the words that they had within the authorised version of the Bible were the perfect preserved words of God. In translation, and we'll talk about translation as well, because that's vitally important. You know, there's translations within the text. Within the scriptures, we have a translation. Can God speak in another language other than Greek and Hebrew, maybe a little bit of Aramaic? You reckon? I reckon he probably can. Personally, I think he can. But there is a motive. The first reason in a court of law, when a criminal is charged with a particular crime, the first thing that they need to, to need to establish is motive. And that's what I want to establish this morning. Do we have motive? Do you have motive for denying the words of God? The text tells us in Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. It's truly not the words that bother people, but what the words say that convict their hearts. They desire to deny the words because the words convict the heart of sin. King Jehoiakim did not cut up the originals of the word of God because he didn't like the ink on the document. He didn't like what they said. He didn't like what they said. The words there testified to him that he was evil and his nation was set to be judged. There are those who hold that the originally inspired texts of both the Old and the New Testament are preserved in faithful copies today right? So, they will hold to the Masoretic Text of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Masoretic Text in the Old Testament and what's known as the Textus Receptus or the Received Text in the Greek New Testament. They will hold to that and they will say, those are authoritative and that's a relatively safe place to be, don't you think? I mean, there's very few of us that would disagree with that, okay? But there's also a method in that. There's a reason that they want to do that, it's because those languages are babble to all of us. What does Paul speak about about speaking in a tongue other than a tongue that you know of? He says, it's Babel. He says, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Okay, so clearly those texts represent nothing to any of us because we don't speak the language. And I would dare say that one scholar in a thousand actually speaks Greek, actually speaks Greek told them and ask them to go down to the store to buy themselves a shirt and tell them to say that in Greek and they wouldn't know how to say it. They wouldn't know how to say it. Not today, anyway. Certainly back then they did. As a matter of fact, it was... Um, oh, what was his name? Escapes me now. The Inklings. You remember The Inklings? There was the... Oh, no. It's obviously left me. You have the one who... who the, the, the twin the Towers, the movie series that came out I've completely forgotten who they were for some reason, it's left me. But anyway, they used to actually sit around talking to each other in Greek, you know, and, they, and that was, but that's back in the 1950s, people don't do that today. What's interesting here is that there is a passion with which people want to deny a translation into their own language to be authoritative. And the passion with which they deny that, they're disgusted by it, they actually want to separate from you if you actually believe that this book is the very perfect Word of God for the English speaking people. They want to separate from you, they, they, they think that that's an apparent idea, why? Because they will stand to be convicted by what it says, because if this is authoritative, they can no longer question it, they can't go to their plethora of Greek lexicons and pick which word suits them. No, they have to accept what's here, they have to accept what's here. In the first sermon of the series, I alluded to the fact that we can indeed have perfect equivalence in translation between languages. The idea that you cannot perfectly translate words and meanings is a myth represented today in almost every language app you can download onto your own phone. Okay, it is a complete myth. Yes, there's some words that do not have an equivalent word in another language, And there are some words that require more words to be able to translate it, yet you can still have perfect equivalence in translation. God did not need every word in a given language to communicate His words, clearly. But if we're permitted to lock up these words and lock them up in a foreign tongue, all of a sudden we have license to either accept them or reject them because we don't really know what they say. But when we've got them plain as day, we're convicted of heart. Our doubt in words liberates us against what they say, basically. Hell doesn't mean hell, it might mean grave or abode of the dead or something like that. Fornication doesn't mean sex outside of marriage, it just means sexual immorality, which essentially can mean whatever you really want it to mean. What's good for you is good for you, what's good for them is good for them. Mores are based. Morality is based on the mores of the people, it's based on the culture, it's not based on an absolute... How often Jesus, however, held the people accountable to know what his words said. Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. Do ye therefore not err because ye you know not the Scriptures? Mark twelve twenty-four. Did ye never read in the Scriptures? Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. John five thirty-nine. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Luke twenty-four twenty-five. Each of these are Jesus' own words, holding people accountable to know the Scriptures, to know the words that they had in their very day. It was never the words that bothered the people, but what the words said that convict their hearts. In denying the words that we have in a language that we can understand, we then have motive to to not do whatever He says. Thomas Jefferson was an interesting individual, so I'll come to him in a second, There's another lady, a lady by the name of Sarah Moore Grimke, in 1838, in her book titled Letters on the Equality of the Sexes. She was one of the first feminists in the feminist movement. She was an originator of this work and she denied or denied, personally denied, the infallibility of the Word of God. She denied the King James Bible and despised it because of what it said and she says this, I believe almost everything that has been written on this subject, this is the subject of the sphere of women, has been the result of a misconception of the simple truths revealed in the Scriptures in consequence of the false translation of many passages of Holy Writ. My mind is entirely delivered from the superstitious reverence which is attached to the English version of the Bible. King James translators certainly were not inspired. I therefore claim the original as my standard believing that to have been inspired. Well, that's handy. She doesn't have an original that she can actually go back to for reference, does she? No, but she wants to hold to that. What does she want to do? She wants to do whatever she wants to do. But notice what she says. She says she makes a testimony that the vast majority of people held to the King James Bible as the Word of God. She can deny what... She, she wants to do this so she can deny what the Bible says... Right by laying claim to a document that doesn't exist. In 1895, Elizabeth Clay Stanton would publish the Women's Bible and she'd publish it with feminist notes in there, many of which mock biblical inspiration and actually called for women to abandon the Bible altogether. This is in the Bible that she wrote, she's telling people not to trust it and to abandon it, get that? It's madness. The Chicago Post at that time wrote about these feminists saying the attack of the new women on the King James Bible would be observed with interest where it does not alarm. So interesting. Delete the words. We're told reality is a stubborn thing yeah. Does God deny the truth does denying the truth change what is true? We spoke about that. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah as we close this sermon off. Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1, it's one of the minor prophets, so you'll get past those five Old Testament prophets, it's the third last, you get to Malachi, you've gone too far. It's a relatively good-sized book, Zechariah, about 10 or so chapters, I think. Zechariah chapter 1, a lot of prophecies of Jesus in Zechariah, it's a great great book. Zechariah chapter 1, two verses we'll read there, verses 5 and 6. The Lord says this, Zechariah chapter 1 verse 5, he says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways, according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. What took hold of their fathers? The words, the words took hold of the fathers. Do, your, do the prophets live forever? No, they don't live forever. Did your fathers live forever? No, they don't live forever. What lives forever? The words, the words that I commanded them to speak, they live forever. And they convicted the hearts of these individuals. They convicted the hearts of these men. Habakkuk chapter two, worth turning there as well. So go back a little bit to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, 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 Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is where we get the phrase the just shall live by his faith but we're going to be reading just verses 1 to 3. Habakkuk speaking about receiving the word of God from this point and he says in chapter 2 verse 1 I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me And what I shall answer when I am reproved and the Lord answered me and said write the vision make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it for the vision is yet for an appointed time but at the end it shall speak and not lie though it tarry wait for it because it will surely come it will not tarry notice first that God intends to make his words plain plain simple, that he may run that readeth it. I want to issue a warning, I want to issue a, a a command here, I want to issue something, a statute, that you may understand it, that you may believe it and then you may deal with it accordingly, that you may run that readeth it. This book is actually filled with one and two syllable words, it's not difficult as far as reading is concerned, what's often difficult is accepting what you've read. Thomas Jefferson decided also that he would follow in King Jehoiakim's footsteps and he cut up the New Testament to suit his own will. In 1820 Thomas Jefferson had and compiled what's known as the Jefferson Bible today. This famous American philosopher and statesman and third American president had literally cut out with scissors from six printed volumes of the King James Version of the New Testament to leave only that which he considered acceptable and of value. You can get the Thomas Jefferson Bible today, it's about that big, it's very small, not very much, because he didn't agree with much, so he only had that much. The funny thing is, the words that he cut out are the very words that are going to judge him in the last day. John chapter 12, verse 48, have a listen to what the Lord says. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him the word that i have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day that reference again is john chapter 12 and verse 48 worth making a note of that john chapter 12 verse 48 remember it's not what people don't understand that upsets and convicts them it's what they do understand that bothers them and we have the words that they don't like they simply take it out of the bible The word hell appears 54 times in the Bible, but in the NIV, it's removed 40 times. They didn't like it, they changed it, they took it out, they omitted the word hell 40 times in the NIV, in the NASV, 41 times, in the New King James Version, 22 times, in the RSV, 41 times, 41 times in the NRSV, in the New Century Version, 39 times, and in the Living Bible, 13 times. The word heaven is removed in the NIV 160 times, in the NASV 127 times and so on and so forth. Uh, Damned or damnable only turns up 15 times in the Bible, it's omitted completely. In the NIV, the NASV, the New King James Version, the the RSV, the NRSV, the NCV and the Living Bible, it's omitted only seven times. Damnable, damned, terrible word, word that people don't understand. Christ is removed 25 times in the NA, in, 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 NIV, 34 times in the NASV. It's removed 121 times in the New Century Version. The word Lord, 352 times, it's omitted in the NIV, 438 times in the NASV, 2,368 times in the Living Bible. It's omitted, the word Lord. Why? Why? You go on and on and on in your newsletters i've actually got a chart beginning on 300 different passages that have been affected in the bible you've only got one page in there so far i'll be adding to them as we go on with this particular topic this is astounding and it continues on and on and on overall in the king james version of the bible words that are completely omitted there's 2,289 words in the New Testament removed in the New King James, 5,219 words omitted completely in the NIV. There's 3,561 words added into the NASV that don't appear within any manuscript or any Bible. The New Century Version has 11,114 words added, added. I know, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Deuteronomy 4.2, ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that it may keep the, com- that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, it says, do not add unto the words that I've put in this prophecy, because God will add unto you the plagues that are written in this book. In the book of Proverbs, it says, do not add, do not remove, lest you be found a liar, lest you be found a liar. Zechariah 1.6, but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? Men may very well choose to alter God's words. They might cut it out like Jehoiakim and Jefferson, but it will remain true regardless. It remains true regardless. You can choose to ignore the gospel. Beloved, you can choose to ignore the gospel. If, If you're here today and you don't know Christ, if you're not born again, if you're not saved, If you have not been forgiven for your sins yet, if you have decided that at this point you're going to wait, you're going to hold off, you're going to hope and wait that by the time you get to finish your own life, you'll have the temerity of heart to actually believe the gospel. If you're going to be waiting for that, then you may not have that opportunity. You may not have that opportunity. Denying the truth of the gospel doesn't change the truth of the gospel. If you're sitting there comfortable today that you can put this off longer and longer. Beloved, there may come a time where you will not have time. There will come a time where you will not have time. The gospel is true and it stands true regardless of what you think of it. My mum was, was dying. She had pancreatic cancer. And before she died, she, she told me that she wants to believe But she's putting it off because, in her mind, she was fearful that if she decides to believe it now, but it turns out not to be true, that she doesn't have a hope to hold on to. Interesting, interesting mentality that she had, though, don't you think? Because you see, she wanted hope, she was looking for hope. And the gospel, the potential that the gospel itself was true, was the only hope that she could identify. But she wouldn't believe it just yet because she was fearful that if she believed it and it turned out to be not true she would be left with no hope does that make sense my mum was a smart lady she was she was a very intelligent woman but i said to her but you're going to hold on to that to when mum she goes you know she was hoping on a deathbed conversion basically and i said to her but mum there's two things you don't know if you're going to be feeling the same way then than you do now you don't know if the Lord might say today is the day of salvation. And there is a time appointed unto the people of God to enter into that rest. And if you deny that now, there's no, there's no promise left you whatsoever that you're going to have that opportunity later. And what if, Mum, what if it's a car accident? What, what if it's something that happens? Around, that, around about that time, there were a, a, a young couple, I think it was, walking in, uh, around Ligon Street and a brick wall fell on them remember that a few years ago here in Victoria? A few years ago, was, uh, quite a while ago. A wall, a complete wall fell on top of them, killed them. What if that happens? I mean how do we not, I mean people are dying and dropping like flies today. We're seeing people dying of the young dying today, we're getting it in the news almost every single day. What, what on earth makes us think that that could not happen? Beloved, there is an opportunity to believe the gospel And that opportunity is today it's today today's all you've got now is all you've got in the next minute is still a hope the last minute has already passed you've only got the present you've got a connection to eternity and that connection to eternity is right now right now write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it for the vision is yet for an appointed time but at the end it shall speak and not lie Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. God's love was made clear to you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He it is who died for your sins, that you might have forgiveness of sins, and you might have the gift of life, eternal life. So I'm going to make it plain for you this morning. I'm going to make it as plain as I possibly can, and I'm not going to make it plain, the Lord is. Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12 in the New Testament, right towards the end there, not far before the book of Revelation. 1 John. 2 John is about a page, 3 John about half a page. Then you've got the book of Jude, which is only one chapter. But 1 John has a few chapters in it. 1 John and chapter 5. this is as plain as possible first john chapter 5 verse 12 he that hath the son hath life he that hath not the son of god hath not life 19 preserved one syllable words that give to you the entire gospel right there he that hath the son hath life he that hath not the son of god hath not life if you do not have the Son of God this morning, you don't have life. You're dead where you stand. And hell will end up being your home. Life is found in the Lord. It's found in Him. Why would you put it off when it's such a joy today? Why would you put it off? You want to? you want to attend to some sin later on? Why? What for? What for? No, the joy in the Lord is there for you today. These simple, single-syllable words make it plain upon tables. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord. We thank you for your wonderful Word. We thank you for the truth that's found therein. And I ask and pray that you would bless this congregation, help it to grow in the knowledge and the love of Christ, and share of the truth of the hope that is found in them. Bless them, dear Father, and help them grow in the knowledge of the Word of the living God. I pray, dear Lord, if there be any here this morning that are yet to know you, that you would convict their hearts because the truth will stand, it will not lie, it never does and it will come and I ask and pray, dear Lord, that they would grab hold of it with both hands and if there any be any, dear Lord, that we know, that we know that we have been burdened by for some time to share the gospel of this hope, I pray, dear Lord, each of us that have this hope, that we would share it with those that we love, those particularly that's on our minds right now, There's at least one person on each of our minds right now that we are to share the gospel with. I pray that this Christmas does not close before that gospel is shared. Bless us dear Father and help us to grow in the light of who you are in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.